Most Christians believe that the Sabbath was either made for the Jews or that it was done away with at the cross. But are these claims supported by the Word of God? Today, we'll find out. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and I am Tudor Alexander. If you haven't done so, make sure you subscribe on my website. That is the best place to stay in touch with me. If you want to ask me questions, if you want to see my content ad-free, if you want to stay in touch with all of the various things that I produce, the soonest and the fastest and the best way to do it is through my website. But today we are continuing our series on the Sabbath. This is the third episode, so if you are just joining, make sure you to check out the, the previous episodes that we did because it's designed, obviously, to go in a progressive fashion. Everything builds off of everything else, and there's a lot of really important things that we do in the beginning to set the context for the things that we will look for and look at at the end. Now, today we are continuing this idea of whether Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or not, and really focusing on this question. We have looked at why the Sabbath matters in the first episode. So again, if you haven't seen that, make sure you check it out because it's going to be very important context for all of the things that I'm discussing today and really throughout the whole series. But we also looked at last week, we looked at um, from Adam to Christ, meaning this idea that, well, the Sabbath was created at Sinai with Moses, which is not true. And we looked at how the Sabbath was actually created in, in Genesis on the seventh day when God rested. And how from Adam all the way through Christ and even beyond with Paul and the apostles and the disciples and the people who converted to Christianity, everybody celebrated the Sabbath. The faithful kept the Sabbath. And that was expected. That was commanded. That was part of God's plan for mankind long before Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was just a reminder. In fact, that's why it says, remember the Sabbath because people forget. It's very interesting that that word is attached to only one commandment. And as you will go through the series, you will learn why God was so intentional about that. But nonetheless, we looked at how the Sabbath was instituted at creation, not at Sinai. We saw how the apostles observed the Sabbath, how they used it to preach and do good works, just like Jesus. Jesus, of course, upheld the Sabbath, but obviously he emphasized right judgment, which is something we're going to look at today as well. Because a lot of people that are, well, let me just put it this way. A lot of Christians today believe that if you, you know, you're advocating for the Sabbath, suddenly that makes you a legalist. And this is the problem. This is the problem why people don't walk the narrow road. They ping pong from one side or the other. And really, you have to walk the narrow road between these two extremes. You're not a legalist if you uphold the Sabbath. It's a moral commandment. And that's what we're going to we, first thing that we're going to look at today. It is a moral commandment. But nonetheless, it's not legalism and it's also not permissivism, where it's done away with and we don't have to worry about it. Those are the two sides of the extremes that the devil gets you at. And it's not a huge issue right now because of grace. Obviously, we have grace. We don't have perfect, we're not evaluated by perfect moral obedience. But the reason it is an issue, and it behooves you to understand these things, is the, the stuff that I covered in the first episode, which is that it will become an issue. And if you don't know what I mean, then go watch the first episode, you'll learn. But it's always been an issue of right judgment, and ultimately that's what this whole series is about. 
Now, again, it's it's not about obeying perfectly or else you're not saved. This is about having right judgment, not going to the right nor to the left. That's what the Bible tells you over 18 times. And it's also about learning history because, again, the thing that's coming is not the big bad deep state. It's not the big bad communist globalist empire. It's actually going to be a Christian nationalist system. And if you have never heard that before, if that's news to you, then watch my end time series. I have a whole bunch of stuff. Go to my website and click on the Christian nationalism uh, bracket or tag or whatever, and you'll see all my news updates having to do with that. And you'll learn the truth. But today we're going to answer some important questions. And they are, should Christians celebrate the Sabbath? Wasn't the Sabbath done away with at the cross because of grace? Wasn't the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ? Like he's our rest now. So, you know, that's more of a spiritualized thing. And we're going to get to, we're going to explain more of that question in the final episode. We'll really break that down because we want to look at how can we as Christians observe the Sabbath without being legalists? Is there such a, a narrow road? And of course there is. That's how it was intended. But we're also going to deal today with some very popular objections that people bring up, which is Romans 12, Hebrews 10, Colossians 2. If you don't know what these are, don't worry about it. Basically, they, they talk about the, the, the Sabbath being a shadow. They talk about the shadows of the past. They don't talk about the actual Sabbath being a shadow. But people use it to support the argument that you see. The Sabbath is just a shadow. It's done away with. And so we're going to look at these very carefully and see what are they actually talking about. Probably this is going to be a longer episode. So make sure you use the timestamps if you need to watch it in breaks. But I promise that you will learn a lot as usual. So the Sabbath is a moral commandment. In Exodus 20 verses 8, where the Ten Commandments are given, right in the beginning, verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. This We're going to come back to this a couple times, but the Sabbath is to the Lord. It's relational. You're giving that to God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, even the person that is not a believer. You are not to impose work on them. Very, very important. Everybody has to rest. So obviously this is very important to God because not only is he commanding not just people, but animals and aliens, you know, resident aliens, foreigners, but also it is, it is telling you to remember. It's part of the moral code, first off, which it should be like right away, that's enough of evidence, but we're really going to document this. It's part of the moral code, and God told you to remember, because people would forget. Very, very important. Remember the previous episode also, where we looked at how the Sabbath was expected even before Sinai, three months before Sinai, where they were collecting manna, God had imprinted upon them this standard of collect the manna six days, rest one day. People went out to collect manna on the seventh day when they shouldn't have. And God told Moses, why do they refuse to obey my commandments, my statutes, and my laws? Now, wait a minute, what's going on? The Sabbath hadn't been given yet, quote unquote. 
to those people who believe it started at Sinai. But obviously, again, if you, if you realize the history, like we looked at in the second episode, the Sabbath has been around since day one, or since day seven, technically, since creation. Adam rested with God on the Sabbath and passed that gener generationally down. When, when uh, Yahweh says that Abraham kept his statutes, his commandments, and his laws, that language doesn't explicitly say Abraham kept the Sabbath, but again, you can fill things back with more revelation. The Bible increasingly gives you more revelation, meaning you can go ahead, get that new information, and go backwards and fill that in. So when God says to the Israelites collecting manna for disobeying the seventh day, why are you not keeping my statutes, my commandments, my laws? That's the same language that he spoke of Abraham for keeping his statutes and commandments and laws. So obviously, there is a consistent history there. And we looked at that in the last episode. But Exodus 20, verse 8, <clears throat> the Sabbath is a moral command. It's the fourth commandment. Unless you're Catholic, which that's a whole other story. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. Salvation for foreigners. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. So does what? Up until this point, does what? He's keeping righteousness and justice, basically obeying God, being righteous. Blessed is this person. But now, wait, there's more. And the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So being morally good behaving morally and obeying God's commandments and laws, moral code. We're not, we're not talking about the ceremonial law right here. Do you understand the context? It's not, he's not talking about keeping feast days or, you know, various things. He's, the Lord is talking about being morally good, keeping justice, turn your, turning your foot away from evil. These things are moral qualities. But this is now paralleled with what? With keeping the Sabbath, being Keeping the Sabbath is a moral good, according to God. Verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a, tree, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who, cho who choose these things that please me and hold, my, hold, my, hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, really quick, because there's a couple more verses to read, but there's just so much in all of this. First off, this is a proof that Jesus is Yahweh, because if you recall in Revelation, where he says, I'll, I'll put you, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and I'll put a, put the name of my God and my name on your forehead. This is the same exact language. It's the Old Testament, though. It's in Isaiah. But it's again, it's the eternal state, it's resurrection, it's being in communion with God. This is what it's all pointing to. But again, you don't get there through the ceremonial system. This is moral behavior. This is like somebody who's righteous. Now, of course, we're not saved by being obedient. But the point is that God is consistently equating moral behavior with also keeping the Sabbath. It's a moral good in this passage. That's what you see here. This is the point. Verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it. So do you see how the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping is 
grouped into people who are ministering to the Lord, who join themselves to the Lord, who love the name of the Lord. These are important things about measurements about loving God. And part of that system of measurements is everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. The burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Obviously, this is language about the future. This is a future situation where I will draw all men to myself. And being in communion with God, being a pillar in the temple of God, being in the house of God, these things are are pictures of that. But nonetheless, you can see the consistent parallels of moral behavior and moral goodness and being upright and righteous with also keeping the Sabbath. That is equated. Very, very important. Now, notice also another important point is that the foreigners are also invited into this. Foreigners are invited to keep this out. So verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, meaning the people who are foreigners, Gentiles, i.e. the new covenant that's coming. Let everyone, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, meaning this is part of the other stuff as a foreigner. doesn't matter if foreigner or Jew, if you are joining to yourself to the Lord, if you are loving the name of the Lord, you're ministering to the Lord, you're keeping his Sabbath, all those things listed are equal in God's eyes, in the sense of value and importance. So, if we look at the new covenants, which also speak about this thing that's coming from the perspective of the Old Testament, we see this idea of the law being written on the heart. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. Now, are we talking about the sacrificial law, the Mosaic covenant? Or are we talking about the moral law? that God is going to put on your heart when he gives you a new heart. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the new covenant, which is prophesied in Jeremiah 31, and we're going to look at Ezekiel 36, God is saying that there will come a day when he's going to write the law on your heart. Why? Because people being given the law doesn't actually change their heart. God, the revelation of Scripture is that God has to do the work to transform your heart so that you become obedient. Otherwise, we serve ourselves. This is the greatest revelation, or I should say the great revelation of Scripture, because there's really a lot of them, but this is one of them, is that God has to be the one to give you a new heart. He's the one who puts the law on your heart so that you can obey, so that you're convicted, so that you want to please God when you have new heart, a new heart, new desires, and so on. All that is prophesied in the New Covenant. But again, if we're talking about the law, the moral law that's being put within them and being written on our hearts, the Sabbath is part of the moral law. So do you think that God would only write nine out of the Ten Commandments on your heart? Is is that what we take from all of this? Or is there something different that we should be interpreting? Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the new covenant. And I will put my spirit within you. 
here we go, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you remember when God says my commandments, my statutes, and my rules in connection to the Sabbath? This is the same thing. He's going to cause you, which by the way, if you're Arminian or you believe that you can lose your salvation or free will salvation, one of the countless verses that you have to reconcile with. It's God that's doing the work. He's the one that is choosing to put his spirit in you and causing you to obey. This is fundamentally against the idea of a libertarian free will of man. Now that's going to ruffle some feathers. That's going to really ruffle some feathers. But ultimately, you have to realize your beliefs come from the Counter-Reformation. The, the person who originated Arminianism, Jacobus Arminius, was a subordinationist. You can look it up. Subordinationism, like modern-day Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, there's plenty. Throughout church history, subordinationism has existed. It was declared a heresy. And all subordinationists, many of the church fathers were subordinationists, default to a works-based understanding of the gospel. So is it any wonder now that Jacobus Arminius was a subordinationist? But I digress. That's a very big can of worms. We're not going to open it up here. But nonetheless, God is going to cause you to walk and obey in his rules. But are we talking about the sacrificial system here? Or are we talking about the moral code? Obviously, we're talking about the moral code. That's what God cares about. He cares about morality and good behavior. He's going to cause you to do that by giving you a new heart. Now, very interesting to, to sort of further this point of distinction between the moral code and the civil laws, or, you know, the basically the sacrificial system. You, you have these pictures of <clears throat> the various laws being put in different places. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 26, it says, Take this book of the law, now this is, we're talking about the Mosaic law now, and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. It's on the side, by the side of the Ark. You can look in the original language, it still says by the side of the Ark. Now, if we look at Exodus 25, verse 16, regarding the commandments, the actual moral code, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So the moral code goes in the ark. We confirm this with Hebrews 9, verse 3 through 4. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which, here it is, was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, i.e. the Ten Commandments, the moral code. So why is this significant? Well, first off, the everything God does is extremely intentional. The, the Mosaic law was told to be put outside of the ark to the side of it as a testimony, a little reminder of the current covenant. But what's inside the ark why is that important? Well, first off, that's a pretty significant difference. Obviously, what's inside the ark, if we're going from the system of, of the Old Covenant where they had a sanctuary, if you're aware of how that looked, it was kind of just like a um, closed-off camp that you entered. Again, all this stuff is a picture of the New Covenant, which is through Christ, of course, but there's more. 
the sanctuary is the plan of the picture of the plan of salvation. You entered in, there was you were covered in white, you washed yourself, you put your hand on the sacrifice, repentance. I've talked about this in my end time series quite a bit. But anyway, the, the sanctuary is a picture of the new covenant of, of salvation. It's a picture of Christ. There's a lot of pictures there. Then you enter the tabernacle. That's a little, you know, more important. And there was the incense, the table of showbread, various things in there that were, again, pictures of Christ. The, the candelabra were with, the, with the lights. That's why Christ said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. All these things were fulfilling these old pictures that the people were used to for hundreds of years. But then you have like the most holy place. So increasingly as we get into, you know, into this center center of this tabernacle of this sanctuary, it gets more and more important. You're not allowed to just walk in there. Otherwise you would get killed. Even the priests, even the high priest couldn't walk into the most holy place anytime he wanted to. Only one time a year. So that's how important it is. Now, now, Consider the fact that God told people to put the tablets in the ark. The ark was in the most holy place. So you have an even like more important uh, level of you know security clearance, basically, to, to, to put the ark or to put the laws in the ark of the covenant. Now, why is that important? Because the ark of the covenant is a picture of Christ. Contrary to what Catholics believe, it's a picture of Mary, which is not true. It's a picture of Christ. Why? What are the three things in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, Hebrews tells you. It's Aaron's staff that, that budded, which symbol of life and resurrection. The staff was just a dead stick, but it came to life, basically, of budded elements, meaning resurrection. You had the manna, which is the bread of life. It points to Jesus. He's the bread from heaven. That, that you feed on that bread, you live forever. And then you have the moral code. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, meaning he is God's perfect standard. He is the, the perfect image of God. He was completely sinless, completely righteous. He is God's character made manifest. So all those three things were part of who Jesus was. Now, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law that was put outside the ark, was not placed in the ark for a reason, because it, it's done away with. Of course it is. But the moral law is not done away with. That's part of the eternal character of God. And of course, the Sabbath is part of the moral law. Do you see the significance? I hope you do, because that's a really important thing to realize. What is in the ark and what is out of the ark, two different things. That's by design. It's not by accident. It's very, very important. Now, another thing I want to quickly point to is... Conservative Christians and hypocrisy, and specifically the whole debate over marriage that's happening these days. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of protests and dialectics with that, so I'm not really going to get into that. But the point is this. Today's evangelicals and conservative Christians are protesting things like gay marriage, LGBTQ marriage, or whatever, you know, whatever's going on these days with all these liberal, you know, attacks on marriage. Of course, they're protesting. However... There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's a good thing. We we're, we have the ability to protest, especially in the United States. But it's a great hypocrisy, and I can tell you why. Because the standard that they're using to protest something like gay marriage is what? How do they what is the standard? Well, the Bible says, well, where does the Bible say? In Genesis, God laid this out and this is God's plan for humanity. 
Now, hopefully you see the hypocrisy emerging from this situation because most of these people, if not all of them, probably all, but I'm just going to say most, 99% maybe, evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, they worship the Sabbath on Sunday or they don't, they believe the Sabbath has been done away with or it was just made for the Jews or whatever. And yet their basis against these liberals who like progressive Christians, you know, the whole alphabet soup protest committee with everything that they're doing, at least they're consistent. They're wrong, but they're consistent because their view is that everything can change. Everything's trans, everything can change. So they're consistent with each other because they don't believe that the, the word of God is the standard. Well, it can change. You know, we, we have different meanings now. We have different society. Liberal. They're consistent. They're not, they're not correct. They're wrong, but they're consistent. Conservative Christians who are arguing against things like gay marriage and they're using the Bible as the standard and what, what God set up in Genesis as that's it. This is the standard that God set up. Well, you know what else, what else God set up in Genesis right after he created mankind? The Sabbath. The Sabbath he set up. On the seventh day you shall rest. And that's been transmitted down through history, but he told you to remember because people would forget. So Christians who object to the fluidity of gender or to gay marriage on the base of Genesis are being hypocritical because Genesis also establishes the Sabbath. Do you see the problem? Those, thing, those things were literally right after each other. After God made male and female, he established the Sabbath. If gender isn't fluid, meaning men can't be women and women can't be men, then the seventh day cannot quote-unquote transition, see what we did there? Transition into the first day of the week, as it has been done from Saturday to Sunday. Nowhere in scripture is there anything that says the seventh day has been transitioned to the first day. This is a tradition of the Catholic Church, and this is one of the reasons why the Protestants lost the Reformation. In fact, the Council of Trent, the reason the Protestants who came before the Council of Trent, they were humiliated. For, this is one of the reasons. It behooves you to understand this. The Jesuits won, and they're winning, and they will win. But the Jesuits refuted the Protestants because, if look, if you're going to be a Protestant, then you have to celebrate the Sabbath on the seventh day. You're, you can't go with Rome and take our day and call yourself a Protestant when you're basically doing what Rome created. Rome created the idea of a Sunday. And that's easy to prove, and we will prove it in this series. But my point is that if you're against gay marriage, if you are against multiple genders or gender fluidity, what's your reasoning as a Christian? Well, probably you're going to use Genesis most of the time. If that's the case or really anything in the Bible, then you cannot also be against the Sabbath. Do you see the hypocrisy? I hope you do, because the Sabbath uh, as a seventh day was part of the intended reality for humanity, just like male and female, just like one man for one woman. All these things were part of the first chapter, second chapter of Genesis. So very, very important. Now, the next question is, is the Sabbath only for Jews? This is, this is a very important question because a lot of evangelical Christians and a lot of modern Christians believe that, oh, it's just a Jewish thing, which is not true. Which, again, in the last episode from Adam to Christ, we proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
that the Sabbath was not made at Sinai. It was reminded at Sinai when God expressed his eternal moral character into tablets of stone that are not going to change ever. And those tablets of stone were put in the ark because the ark was the most holy presence of God right there. Not like the ceremonial law, which was placed outside the ark. Very, very important. But remember the last episode, and if you haven't seen it, go watch it. But we're going we're gonna to review a couple things here so that we can have a fresh look at this. Mark 2, verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, the son, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Does this mean that the Sabbath is done away with? Or is Christ telling you to use right judgment? The answer is he's telling you to use right judgment. The Sabbath was made for man. It was a thing that God had given to man as a gift. Now, every time in the Old Testament that it's mentioned a Sabbath to the Lord, that's pretty common language. You're giving that time to God. God is giving you the gift of an audience with him to spend intention and, and a whole day intentionally with him in prayer and reflection, in relaxation and enjoyment, to really enjoy the Lord and to have a delight. That's what the point is. The Sabbath is a delight. And our goal with this series is to find how it can be a delight without running into legalism or running away from it thinking that it's not doesn't concern us. That's the goal of the series. But he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, which is very important because the Sabbath is a form of worship. The Sabbath to the Lord. We are worshiping God on the seventh day when we rest because we're acknowledging him as the creator of the law as the provider and as the savior. God is very relational. He's relational within himself. And the Sabbath is relational in nature. The Ten Commandments are really about relationships, if you look at it. The first four commandments about are about your relationship with God. And the last six are about your relationship with other people. So the Sabbath is about your relationship to God. And that was part of the moral code. It's always been part of the moral code. So the, the integral nature of the seventh day is tied into what it means to be human, to, to have a relationship with God, and to be righteous. Now, again, we're not saved by being obedient. But again, from all those previous verses where you saw the Sabbath is equated to a moral good, it's very clear. And Jesus is fulfilling that by telling you how to use right judgment. All the situations we looked at in the previous episode with Christ rebuking the Pharisees for, for not having right judgment on the Sabbath. Not once did he say, well, you fools, the Sabbath is done away with. Don't be, don't be so legalist. No, he said to have right judgment, i.e. the Sabbath is still in force, but you're not treating it the way you should. That's what Jesus is saying. Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20, um, not one jot or tittle. Christ came to fulfill the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, i.e. make them more full of meaning and richness and beauty. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Is he talking about the ceremonial law or the moral law? The moral law is unchanging. It's part of God's unchanging character. God never changes, therefore... His standards and morals never change. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, which is why I'm doing this series. Because once you know the truth and you willfully reject it, 
That's not good. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, God's standards are extremely high. And that's the point. The point is to, to point you to the Savior, because it's impossible to meet, God, meet God's standards. They don't ever change. They will never change. They're completely perfect. So there's no way to meet those standards. That's why you need a Savior. But again, that doesn't get rid of the law. The law is still there. It's a, it's a constant reminder of who God is, so that you have a relationship with the Savior. It's, do you see the brilliance of it? It's really quite brilliant. It really is. But the moral law is still valid. Remember also the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus equates lust to adultery and hatred to murder. Well, wait a minute. Those are two out of the Ten Commandments. It's implied, based on the parallelism that's going on, that all of those Ten Commandments have the same level of nuance. He didn't go through the Ten Commandments and say, okay, well, this is like idolatry and this is like that. Although Paul says in some places, like, covet covetousness is idolatry. But nonetheless, the, the point is clear from the Sermon on the Mount. The point is, like, look, you thought adultery was bad? You, you thought getting to the point of actually sleeping with somebody, even though you're married, that's a sin? I'm telling you that looking at somebody with lust is equal to that in my eyes. That is, that is the level of scrutiny that God has for his morality and his sense of moral behavior. That even if you look with lust, this is considered adultery. That's how sinful human beings are and how much we need a savior. But if that's the case, then imagine that the Sabbath is not done away with either. Put it all together. Not one jot or tittle is going to be removed. And I came to fulfill the law. And the Sermon on the Mount, well, what does that mean? That means that God's standard for you resting on the seventh day, as is clear from history, watch the previous episode, is very, very high. Of course, we're not measured by that standard, but that standard is there. It's there to remind you of who God is, a perfect, omniscient, omnipotent being, self-existent. So the point is, again, once you know and you relax these, especially in my case, if I'm Speaking on these things is very important to me to get the truth and to empower you in the truth, because it's certainly not my goal to walk you away from that truth like so many people are doing today, unfortunately. In Matthew 24, when he's talking about the end times, Jesus mentions the Sabbath. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Why does Jesus mention the Sabbath, I wonder? Now, some people say, well, this was for the Jews. So, you know, that's why he mentioned the Sabbath. But that's not really consistent with any of Scripture that we see. Throughout Scripture, Christ is always speaking for the elect. My sheep know my voice. I have sheep that I need to bring from other folds. It's always about his sheep. I will not cast out anybody who comes to me, and of course you can't come to him unless the Father grants you and teaches you and draws you to Christ. That's John 6. So all these things are spoken to the elect. Remember that Jesus spoke in parables. That's so the wicked, like the Pharisees, who were not elect, who God was not planning to regenerate their hearts because they had a purpose to fulfill. They had to betray Christ. And they had to reveal his wisdom too by challenging him constantly. 
So the wicked had a purpose, just like Judas, just like the Romans. But nonetheless, he was speaking in parables so that the wicked wouldn't understand and that the elect would understand because that's a work of God. So Jesus is always speaking to the elect. He's not warning apostate, reprobate Jews in the future about judgment and saying, well, better watch out. Hope you, hope it's not on a Sabbath. No, he's, he's speaking, and the people who are really going to get it are the believers in that time, which is in 66 to 70 AD. That is several decades after Christ, and the idea is that there will be believers in Jerusalem who are going to get judged, and or I should say Jerusalem is going to be judged, and there will be believers there in Jerusalem who will be in danger of that situation. So watch out. Pray that your flight is not on the Sabbath. <clears throat> Very important. Meaning people were expected to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath is still something that Jesus cared about. Very, very important. It's always been about the sheep. It's always been about <clears throat> his elect. The goats were always present, but they didn't understand. It wasn't for them. Now, another thing to consider is why, <clears throat> why warn the Jews about judgment when really they need to repent first in order for them. It doesn't matter if, if do you see the point? Like, hopefully I can communicate this clearly. Jesus is not warning unrepentant Jews in the future. If that was the case, why would he do that? He's his entire ministry was warning people to repent, 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 repent. Jesus talked about hell more than about paradise or heaven. So he warned people to repent so now if he's warning people in the future and the assumption is, well, this is just for the Jews, i.e. who? Like the Jews who reject Christ? No, they're going to get judged along with all the pagans and everybody else who got judged. But he's actually speaking to people who are saved in the future, the elect, people who trust in Christ. Like, hey, he's giving you a warning so that you heed it and you run. But if you think that it's about the Jews, it doesn't make sense because people who are unrepentant, who haven't been warned about repentance first, who haven't repented, they're going to get judged. Like that's, that's the whole purpose of being wicked. You served your purpose and now it's time for you to get judged. There's no point for him to warn unrepentant Jews in the future is the point. Hopefully that makes sense because he's warning future believers. And if that's the case, which it is, future believers are expected to celebrate the Sabbath. He, he expected that. Pray that your flight is not on the Sabbath. Why would he say that? Unless it was part of the intended plan for mankind and for Christianity too. But moving on, John 14, very popular verse, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not talking about the sacrificial system. Obviously, he's talking about the moral commandments. And there's two ways to really look at this statement. There's a legalistic way in the sense that if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments, meaning you got to do this in order to whatever, to achieve the outcome. A lot of legalist and sacred name people and Hebrew roots people use this to support their views. And that's not really the understanding that I have. The understanding I have is if you love Christ, meaning if you have been given a new heart, you will keep the commandments. Do you see the difference of how this is inflected? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Meaning he's telling you, here's the measurement. How you know you love the Lord is that you intend to keep the commandments. 
And that's true, because why? Because the New Covenant says that God will write the law, i.e. the Ten Commandments, on your heart and convict you and guide you and force you and convict you and whatever other word you want to compel you and guide you and make you obey. He will make you obey. That's the whole point. You can't obey on your own. We are sinful and we are in the momentum of of sin and death. We need God to resurrect us and to cause us to obey. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's basically it. Now, later in John 14, uh, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Very interesting statement when we talked about this with the Trinity, in my Trinity series. But anyway, verse 24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Did God give a word to remember the Sabbath? Did Jesus say the the Sabbath is done away with? No. He fulfilled the Sabbath, and he said the Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift for man. God rested on the seventh day with Adam. It was a gift. The picture that I put for the second episode of this series, which is one of my favorite pictures, by the way. I mean, it's, you know, it's an artist's rendition. Who knows how things actually look? But it's a picture of Adam and Eve resting with God in paradise. What a beautiful, what a beautiful gift. Imagine being born into an adult body. You're perfect. The world around you is just amazing, like full of life. And the first day that you spend is with God resting in paradise. What a gift. What a gift. And of course, there's, we talked about how this is also a picture of the future, where ultimately the Bible comes back to that picture, which is fulfilled in Christ. Christ comes to earth. We get resurrected bodies. We live forever in a new creation with him. This is the, not only the picture of what God intended for mankind, but also the future, the consummation of all things. So that is a gift, my friends. That is an amazing gift that we've been given, and it is part of God's words. So if you love God, then you will keep his word. Doesn't mean you are keeping his word in order to be saved. It means that that's a measurement. Faith without works is dead. Doesn't mean that works save you. It means that a way to measure yourself and to confirm your election, as Peter says, is to... Look and see what are the fruits of your faith. Does your faith provide you with fruits of obedience, with with the desire to know God, to know his ways, to know his word? That's a fruit of faith, and that means that you love Christ. So take all of this into consideration as we continue, because the Sabbath is not done away with. It will never be done away with. Again, I don't know how it's going to be when Jesus returns. Time will largely be irrelevant in terms of aging, But my guess is that we will probably still have a seven-day week. Just my guess. But either way, until then, we have a seven-day week. And you're commanded to rest on the seventh day as a moral good because it was a gift to you. Doesn't mean you have to do it perfectly. Doesn't mean you're saved by doing that. It means you have a new fulfilled reality in Christ of resting, which is so much more fulfilling than what the Israelites had. Because you have a new heart, you have the Holy Spirit, You have the knowledge of the New Testament. All these things make it more full. He came to fulfill the law. Very, very important. Now, Revelation has some interesting things to say, too. Chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, why is this mentioned, I wonder? This is a very curious mentioning, but again, nothing is by accident in the Bible. Nothing is by accident. Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. What's the call? Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith in Jesus. So the saints, comma, who are the saints? Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those two things are combined, always. Very, very interesting. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may have rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Rest is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. We have to we enter God's rest. The Israelites were, you know, the ones who rebelled were denied entering God's rest. There was a constant theme of rest, and of course that is fulfilled in Christ. But that doesn't mean that the Sabbath is done away with. Now, why is this so important? There's a couple of important points here, and first one is endurance. Endurance is a theme throughout the Bible, really, but especially throughout the New Testament, the church age, where there's persecution, deception, throughout this period of time until Christ returns. So endurance is going to be a theme in our lives, especially as the end times wrap up. We are in that final generation, I believe, of all of these things consummating and and coming to a head with the mark of the beast, the you know, the, the one world system and all these things that are have been talked about for quite a while. So endurance is going to be very important. But endurance is tied to keeping the commandments. Now, why is that's a very curious thing to mention in a in a passage about the end times and about basically this this period of time throughout the church age. We're not saved by keeping the commandments. So obviously the Bible is not telling you something different than the gospels. So what's going on here? Well, the first one is that what we just talked about with fruits of the faith. There are many false converts throughout the Bible, that, especially the New Testament, that warn you parables about false converts, examples of false converts, false teachers, false prophets. Christ warns you of these things. The apostles warn you of these things. There's a counterfeit that's happening in this church age. So we are invited to examine ourselves constantly to see that we're not a counterfeit. So how do you know that? Well, you keep whether you keep the commandments or not. People who say one thing and do another, they're counterfeits. They're hypocrites. They don't have true faith. They don't love God because they don't keep his commandments. That doesn't mean you're saved by keeping the commandments. It means that is a measure of whether you are actually in faith or not. So that's kind of the first meaning I could see from this, that here's a call for the saints. Who are the saints? Well, those who keep the commandments, i.e. those who actually have fruits of their faith. That's how you know that somebody's actually a Christian. They don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't steal. They keep the Sabbath because that's part of the commandments. But the Sabbath is often ignored. And it's very interesting that this is brought up in the end times, in the book of Revelation, in reference to these things that are happening. And that's why I believe that it has to do with the end times. Jesus, and actually when, when Yahweh commanded the Ten Commandments, he said, remember the Sabbath. It's the only commandment out of all 10 that is attached to a time and also to remember. Remember it. Why? Do you think people, when they were apostate in Israel or throughout history, when they murdered somebody, do you think that they remembered the the commandment on killing? No, they forgot it. Obviously, they were in a moment of ignorance 
and they forgot it when they were committing adultery. They forgot about that commandment. So all of the commandments have been forgotten about, in quotations, one way or another, because sin has been very much poisoning reality. So then why would God say, remember the Sabbath? Well, obviously all of them need to be remembered. But why the Sabbath? So important. Again, no word is wasted, especially in something like the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath, because it will be forgotten. That's why. People always today remember, well, I got to... Got to not steal, got to not lie, all those things, got to not have adultery. Yeah, sure, that's that's part of, that's very much front and center, even though people forget momentarily, that's still very much front and center. But the Sabbath has been forgotten. And this is the great thing that will come into play with the end times events. That's why this book, this final book of the Bible, who deals with the end times, is warning you about keeping the commandments. Because the fourth commandment, will come into play at the end times. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch the first episode of this series. You will learn what it's going to be. Ultimately, it's a test of faith. And it's a practice of our faith, too. Who do you obey? Is it man or God? Who do you trust in for your provider, for your Savior? Is it Rome? Or is it the Lord? Very, very important. Can you spend time with God for a whole day intentionally? That's difficult to do in this day and age. I'm not perfect at it by any means. I'm really not, and I'm not here to tell you that I am. But I try, and I'm, I'm consistently trying to get better at it. Sometimes I fail, sometimes I do, sometimes I do better. But ultimately, it's about your practice. It's a practice of faith. And it's also a test of faith. It will be a test of faith when things really start to shift in the direction of a one-world religion, which is coming very soon. That religion will enforce obedience just like it did for 1,400 years. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch my end time series or watch the first episode of this series. These attitudes will come front and center as the mark of the beast rolls out. So this is why the Bible consistently mentions this issue. you got to keep the commandments. It's, not, it's saying not you have to keep the commandments to be saved, but the saints are the people who have their faith in Jesus and also keep the commandments. Why is that an issue? Well, there's one of those commandments that will be an issue if you've studied these things. So wake up, open your eyes, realize that these things are not fairy tales. They're based on history, certainly much of it, and they will be very important in the coming years and whatever, however much longer time we have. I don't know. Now, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees over tradition and law, and we looked at this in the previous episode, but we're going to look at it again. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Very important and many such things that you do. So was Jesus for tradition, Catholics and Orthodox and people who celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday? Was Jesus for tradition? Absolutely not. What did Jesus use in this example to compare tradition to? Well, it tells you very simple. Thus making the vo making void the word of God. Mark uh, 7 verse 13, by your tradition. So what was Jesus' standard? Jesus' standard was the word of God. 
if you hold the word of God up to somebody's tradition and there's a mismatch, you have a problem with the tradition because you know the word of God is consistent. God can't lie. God can't vacillate. He's not inconsistent. So this is how you know what is true and what is not. Or I should say what is true and what is not. I point it to the tradition. In this case, tradition doesn't line up with the word of God. And so it nullifies the word of God, meaning it's wrong. It's evil. Now, this is aim- the same can be said with Sunday observance. I don't mean worshiping God on Sunday because you can worship God on any day of the week. I mean Sunday Sabbath observance, meaning we're resting on the seventh day or we don't have to rest anymore because, you know, it's done away with. All of those things are lies and they're lies designed to bring in the one world system, which will enforce Sunday initially, probably by inviting you and making it seem like a good thing, but eventually they'll enforce it. And at that point, I think many will wake up. So my goal is to help people wake up before then so that they can be prepared. But this is the problem with tradition. And what was happening here is Korban is basically somebody, if they hated their mother or father, they could find a way to slight them legally, righteously, in Pharisees' eyes, by donating their property to the temple. And then you're, oh, you're righteous, you're good, you're, you know, it was, you're doing it for God. So in such a way, people could be righteous to the outside, while really because they hated their father and mother, they didn't want to give them anything. So this is basically the, the, the thing that Jesus is pointing to. Like you are using works and traditions and ideas to give people the false assurance of righteousness when they're behaving wickedly. It's horrible. And of course, he rebuked them for that. But this is, this is the conflict between the ceremonial law or basically man-made laws and the moral law, which is the same thing with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a moral command. It was written by God directly. It was given to Moses to put in the Ark of the Covenant inside the Ark, eternal, eternally part of who God is. The civil laws and the sacrificial system were written down by Moses, and they were put outside the Ark. And of course, they're done away with with the cross. We do not need to observe 600 plus whatever, you know, Mosaic laws, whatever there are. Jesus upheld the law, but he upheld the moral law. Very important. Because as, as you can see in this example, what is he pointing to? He's pointing to the Ten Commandments. The, the law here is not, or the word of God is the Ten Commandments. It's the, it's the commandment on honoring your father and your mother. Now, Romans 3, verse 31, what does Paul say? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law i.e. you don't have permission and license to sin once you're saved. The law is still your measurement of moral behavior. The difference is that now you have a heart that you can obey it, not perfectly, but you have a heart and a desire to obey it. And you're not judged by the performance either because there's grace. But we uphold the law, which is the moral law. He's not talking about the civil or mosaic law or sacrificial system. He's talking about the moral law. Keeping the Sabbath is a fourth commandment. So if you have to ask yourself this, if Paul is saying we uphold the law, if Jesus is upholding the law, consistently throughout scripture, the law is still there, moral commandments. If you believe, this is a key question you have to keep asking yourself, my dear Christian friends. If you believe that stealing is wrong, that coveting is wrong, that murdering is wrong, that lying is wrong, that using God's name in vain is wrong, 
that bowing down to idols is wrong. If you believe all these things is, are wrong, then why is it that when it comes to just the Sabbath, suddenly it's okay to forget about it? Suddenly it's okay that this, the law was changed to Sunday. Suddenly it's okay that, oh, it's just made for the Jews. Oh, we don't need to. Why do people fight so hard against something that was a gift from God? This is the thing that I truly don't understand. Every, like most of the time when I speak to people about the Sabbath, they immediately hiss at me as some legalist. And no, we don't, we don't need to stop Judaizing. We don't need to do that. Like, what is wrong with you? That's one of the commandments that was made for your good, for a delight. It was a gift. Out of all the commandments, it was a gift to, to man from God. So people fight against something that God was intentionally giving you for your own good, which is, it really, it doesn't make any sense to me. Imagine a CEO from a very wealthy company. This is, again, these are flawed metaphors, but just go with it. Imagine a CEO from a very prestigious company, somebody maybe that you admire, or maybe a, you know, I don't know, like a celebrity or whatever. These are, these are poor examples, but somebody that you admire that decided to give you one day out of the week to spend with them, to mentor you, to talk with you, to basically have time with them. Very prestigious person. We're talking, you cannot have access to this person in day-to-day -day life. But they decide to say, listen, you know what? I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you a gift. And you say, you know, I'm okay. I've got other things to do. I don't need to do that. How do you think that that person would feel with your rejection of the offer that they gave you? The gift really that they made for you is, is reserving that time from their busy schedule to spend with you. How would that person feel? Well, that person would feel really crummy. Now apply that, how much more, a lesser to the greater, is it with God? That God structured time around the fact that he rested with Adam and Eve as his intention for humanity, as the picture that he's showing about where all of this is going to. It's going to come back to this. At some point, we're all going to rest with God. This is a gift for you to remember this ultimate destination every week. I'm going to give that gift to you. And you can spend time with me and reflect and enjoy and rest knowing that I'm your provider. Imagine that you would say now, as a professing Christian, nope, I'm okay, God. It's been done away with. And you're telling God how the law is when he's the one who wrote the law. Really profound. And really, again, I hope this convicts some of you because you're not saved by observing the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is a gift and it's a moral command. And it is so enriching for your life and for your faith. And it will be a test of faith in the near future. So wake up. But the narrow road is also very important, and I want to talk about the narrow road a little bit, because the narrow road is my focus with practically everything that I do. Especially with the Sabbath, we want to look at how to avoid the dialectic. It's, there's always a dialectic. And when I say narrow road, I mean walking the path that is in between these two extremes. On one side, you have legalism. We got to celebrate the Sabbath and the feast days and all these other things. And on the other side, you have this permissiveness where liberalism, right and left, literally the Bible tells you don't swerve to the right or to the left. Isn't that interesting? Over 18 times, because that's how the devil gets you. He, if he can't get you with legalism, he's going to get you with progressive Christianity. If he can't get you with the dark, he's going to get you with the light. 
if he can't get you with, you know, religion and whatever, he's going to get you with new age. If he can't get you with atheism and communism, he's going to get you with Christian nationalism. All these things are just dialectics of, of right and left. The narrow road is walking in between and not swerving. So how do we walk the narrow road and keep the Sabbath as delight? This is the question. Well, the first thing I want to say is remember that Jesus had the attitude of using right judgment on the Sabbath. He didn't do away with the Sabbath. He said, use right judgment. This is the key. In Isaiah 58, verse 13 through 14, God tells you, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my day, on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, it is honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or taking or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, this is, again, the Sabbath is unique in all the commandments. It's unique in that it's tied to a specific time, in space and time when you have to do it. It's unique that it's tied to the idea that you have to remember it. God is warning you because people are going to forget it from the culture, from the mindset. And it's also unique because God is telling you that it's a delight. It's a delight. No other commandment does God speak about it in such a fashion. Of course, all of them are important. But the Sabbath is highlighted because it's specifically time-bound time and it's you spending time with God and it's a delight to be that way. It's a gift. The Sabbath was made for man. Very, very important. Now, what's the context of Isaiah 58 is true and false fasting. So people were basically doing works and fasting and doing all these things to try to impress God or be righteous. And the, the point that God is consistently making through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through all these various prophets is like, listen, I don't care about your sacrifices and all these works that you're doing. I care that you have the right heart. Use right judgment, right? These things, true and false fasting, when, you, when you're fasting, but you're doing wicked things, or you're trying to be self-righteous like the Pharisees, that's wicked, that's evil. So that's, that's a counterfeit. God cares about the heart. He cares about what truly matters. And the same thing is with the Sabbath. As we can see clearly through many of the Jesus, Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees on the Sabbath, which I highlighted in the last episode, Jesus never done away, did away with the Sabbath. He said, use right judgment. God cares about the heart, so he doesn't care about legalistic obedience because it's impossible to have legalistic obedience, as is highlighted from the many interchanges with the Pharisees where they're saying, oh, see, somebody's gathering grain on the Sabbath. You can't do that. And Jesus is pointing them to, to precedents like David uh, eating the bread of the presence while he was running from his enemies because he was hungry. That was not, that was technically illegal, but the higher good is David got to eat that day because he was running from his enemies. Use right judgment. This is what God cares about is that you use right judgment. Sometimes there will be a conflict of interest. Sometimes there'll be necessary things that you need to do. Sometimes that there will be good deeds that you need to do, like helping the poor, preaching, volunteering. Sometimes there's emergencies that you need to do. Like when Jesus said, um, you know, if you're, if you're ox, or, or goat falls in a, like a pit or something, you need to rescue your animal. Not just because it's Sabbath doesn't mean you can leave it there to die. You have to rescue the animal. So there's emergencies that need to be done. 
Sometimes there's a higher good. Like maybe, you know, you need to help your parents in some way. Or somebody, like I said, needs to be rescued. The example that Jesus uses is circumcision. Meaning, they already were circumcising people on the eighth day, because that was the law. And some kids were born in such a way that the eighth day was a Sabbath. And so what do you do? Now you have a conflict of two things. Which one do you choose? Well, they chose the circumcision so the circumcision wouldn't be broken. But in the process, you're doing work, technically, so you're breaking the Sabbath. Well, it's okay, because one had to be done. There was a priority in this case. There was a higher good. You're trying to obey God, so that's a higher good. Now, of course, circumcision is done away with. That's part of the Old Covenant. But the law is not done away with. And sometimes you will have conflicts of two good things. Like, again, Jericho is another example that we used before. Jericho... They were marching around the city for seven days, meaning on the Sabbath, they were doing something. They were marching, they were carrying weapons, they were carrying trumpets, they were judging that particular city. And so the question is, does that work? Well, no, because first off, God wrote the law. So if he's telling you to do something, then it's good. God cannot command you to do anything evil. So what's what's the principle? The principle is when there's a conflict between these two things, you choose the higher good. Use right judgment obeying God through circumcising the child on the eighth day is a good thing. It's okay that you're working on the Sabbath because you're doing it to obey God and to to give glory to God and to be obedient and to do a good. That's okay. Use right judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, if you're going to accept that principle, why do you judge me when I'm doing good on the Sabbath? Use right judgment. It's not that the Sabbath is done away with. It's that you have to use right judgment. This is the consistent point. Now, another thing to remember also with the narrow road and walking the narrow road with the Sabbath is Paul and how you read Paul and how you interpret Paul. Very, very important. In the last episode, we looked at plenty of evidence that Paul observed the Sabbath because that was his custom and everybody who converted from, you know, being a Jew, basically the first Christians were Jews. So they observed the Sabbath and the first Christians up until actually even well into the middle medieval ages, celebrated the Sabbath. They were persecuted for it, but nonetheless, Christians observed the Sabbath, and I will document that. But Paul observed the Sabbath. Now, here's the problem with this, and again, this is where people either go to the left or to the right. Some people ignore this evidence that Paul, you know, basically observed the Sabbath and all these things that we covered, and say, excuse me, and say he was... See, he was just going to preach. There's no more Sabbath. He was just preaching on the Sabbath. And so this is the new covenant. He's just evangelizing. So they go the liberal route. Some people take the evidence that is obviously there to mean that we need to keep the law to be saved. Like, oh, you need to keep the feast days too. See, that's true Christianity before the Catholic system came. Which, again, it's based on a part truth. But nonetheless, it, it skews you back into legalism. So this is, you have to be so discerning these days, folks. There's a bit of truth in everything. And unless you have good principles, then you will walk off the narrow road. So either people take Paul's example in Acts and say, you see, he was just preaching on the Sabbath and that was, you know, this is the new covenant. We don't have to do that anymore, which is not true. Go back to the previous episode if you disagree with that. Or they say, see, he was observing the Sabbath. Look at all these Sabbaths he observed and he was going to the synagogues. True. 
we have to keep now, the conclusion from that is, instead of walking the narrow road, we have to keep the feast days, we have to keep Passover, we have to do this and this and this and this and all that. And use the Hebrew calendar and just all these different legalistic things. So the narrow road is not about swinging to the left or to the right. The first Christians were Jews, they observed the Sabbath. Paul also observed the Sabbath, but he had a unique ministry, just like Jesus, where the Sabbath was an opportunity to glorify God, to do a higher good, which is preaching the gospel. So that was unique to Paul. So of course he was keeping the Sabbath, but he was it was fulfilled for him in that sense. It was a higher meaning because he was preaching the gospel and doing a higher good, obeying God. It is lawful to obey God, and sometimes obeying God requires you to break the Sabbath. You have to ju- use right judgment because obeying God is the higher good. And in this case, obeying God to travel and, and basically preach the Sabbath, and you know, obviously you're doing work, you're doing something. But Sabbath, the Sabbath is not about cessation of activity. It's about rest and, and doing good. So ultimately, use right judgment. Christians also kept the Sabbath for hundreds of years, and we'll document this in the future. Now, I want to talk really quick about organized religion and holidays and traditions and all these things with the specifically the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church. They have recreated the sacrificial system with all of their feast days and saints days and fasting days like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, especially the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, I know because I'm Eastern Orthodox. I used to be Eastern Orthodox. I grew up Eastern Orthodox. And I used to fast every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I even used to do no animal products, no meat for 40 days for Lent. So we were pretty hardcore and these things are ultimately just teachings of men. They're not Sabbaths. They're not created by God. They're created by man. But of course, if you are in these churches, you believe that the tradition is, you know, equal to the word of God. And so this is the problem. But obviously, according to at least one example, Jesus compared the word of God to traditions of men, and they're not equal. Not always equal. Maybe sometimes they are. But in the case of the Korban issue, they weren't equal, and so the tradition was evil. So this is what you have to do. You have to compare your traditions to the Word of God. Part of the prophecy against this future counterfeit system that Daniel prophesied, in Daniel 7.25, if we look at it, he shall speak words against the Most High. This is the little horn power that comes out of Rome that rules for 1260 years, which is the papacy. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, i.e. 1260 days, prophetic days, which is years, which is the papal power ruling from 538 AD to 1798. If all of this sounds like crazy talk, watch my end time series. You'll, or even watch the, I have a summary episode that you have no excuse. 30 minutes, literally, I don't even know, 200 plus hours of research and 60 hours of content condensed in 30 minutes. Go watch it. You'll learn the truth. And at least it'll wake you up to some things. And if you're curious, you can watch some of the more in-depth episodes. But he will think to change times in the law. Now, here's the problem. Every power in history has always changed times and laws. They always have their own calendars. They always have their own reckoning. They always have their own laws. So Daniel is not telling you, hey, this is going to happen. You know the thing that always happens? No. Why is he saying this? Because he's telling you that this particular power is going to change a specific time in a law, which is God's time and God's laws. 
Now, the law in question is the Sabbath that was changed, and I will document that in the future. But we've also changed the time. The calendar that we live in today is not the calendar that God established. The real calendar begins in the spring, when life appears on the earth. We have an inversion. We have an inversion of the truth. Our day starts at midnight, the darkest time of the the day, um, which, by the way, one of the next episodes, let me see. I don't know if it's the next episode or... Yeah, it's actually the next episode. The next episode, we're going to look and see, does the day begin at sunrise or sunset? And it begins at sunrise, which is probably going to ruffle a lot of people's feathers who keep the Sabbath or believe in the Sabbath. But you have to learn the truth, man. It begins at sunrise. It was never reckoned from evening. That's a Babylonian thing. But nonetheless, today, we live in that system. The new year begins in the dead of winter when all things die. The new day begins at night, the middle of darkness. We have all these pagan holidays. If you're Catholic or Orthodox, you have additional liturgical calendars, which basically, um, sorry for that sound, a bunch of motorcycles just drove by. But if you're Catholic or Orthodox, you have all these liturgical feasts and saints days and all these things that have polluted really the, the system that God created with the feast days. Now, I'm not saying you have to observe the feast days. I'm just saying the system God created and the calendar that God created, first off, was in alignment with the natural order. The day was reckoned from morning, sunrise, and the year started with the spring when you, when you noticed life coming out of the ground and blossoming. That makes sense. But regarding the, the feast days and the calendar that God created specifically, all of those feast days pointed to Christ to foreshadow Christ and to give you a picture of who he was going to be, what he was going to do. However, the liturgical calendars and everything point to point you to the authority of the church and keep you in her rat race of a system. Saint so-and-so, oh, then we have this feast and that feast and the gathering of the apostles and this and that, like things that were never mentioned by God in, in the Bible and his word were not intended for our revelation, for our understanding. They're teachings of men. And these particular things keep you in the momentum of the church rather than pointing you to the plan of salvation through Christ and through what he did. So church's calendars and all these feast days and things, they're not they're not from the word of God. And why I say that is because there is a, especially in the Orthodox church, there is this idea that it's a sin to do certain things like eating meat on Friday or washing your laundry, doing your laundry on Sunday. But these things are not sins. They're not, it's not founded. It is not founded that it is a sin because, first off, God never commanded you to not wash your clothes on Sunday. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is. So if you're washing your clothes on Saturday, then yeah, don't do that. But Sunday is there's meaningless. Sunday is Rome's day. It's not a sin. It's also not a sin to eat meat on Friday. It's also not a sin to eat eggs on Wednesday. These things are teachings of men. So realize that the Sabbath is a moral commandment. Breaking commandments equals a sin. We, we, we do not want to maximize that in our life as Christians. When we are born again, we desire to minimize our sin. We're going to keep sinning. That's inevitable, and there's grace for that. But we want to minimize and avoid things, especially ones that are obvious. So now the million-dollar question is, as I've made you aware of all these things with the Sabbath, now that you know the truth, what will you do with it? Will you choose to continue in rebellion now that you're aware of it? I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just saying, will you choose to continue or will you 
reevaluate your life, especially considering the fact of what is coming. And if you have watched any of my end time stuff or the first episode of this series, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we'll cover it in this series. We will. Don't worry. We're going to get into some deep stuff, but all this stuff is context. So then when we get to things like Project 2025, you'll understand why it's important. So conclusion from all this stuff that we just talked about before we get into objections and we look at all those popular verses on the shadows of things to come. Nowhere in scripture does it say that the law was changed or that we need to stop celebrating the Sabbath. It doesn't say that anywhere. Now, that's an argument from silence, sure, but ultimately that is significant. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the law has been changed or even suggested. All the things that we looked at from both the apostles and from Christ suggest that the law is maintained. It is an eternal part of who God is. God doesn't change, neither does his moral standard and moral character. In fact, it says the opposite. It says that the law is upheld and we are we are upholding the law. That doesn't mean we're saved by the law. Doesn't mean we're saved by moral performance, but we uphold the law. We want to obey. The new covenant is that God will cause you to obey his statutes and his laws. The Sermon on the Mount reveals God's absolutely perfect standard for his law in a way that's even more perfect than, you know, on face value, like when you get the Ten Commandments, you're like, wow, this is rough list. Like nobody can meet this. But then Jesus comes in and tells you, yeah, you thought that was rough. Well, guess what? Looking with lust is considered adultery. That's, that's what I think adultery is. Not just like getting in bed with your neighbor's wife after, you know, texting back and forth. You, you know, the moment that you thought about her, that was adultery. That's how perfect his standard is, man. So now consider all of them are applicable that way, including the Sabbath, because it's a moral command. It's not ceremonial. It wasn't established at Sinai. This is very clear. It existed, was practiced, and expected way before Sinai from creation with Adam. And Adam passed it down to his generations, which is obvious when you look retrospectively, like we did in the previous episode from Adam to Christ. Now, let's talk about objection number one which is Romans 14. So we're going to read it and we're going to look at some context. Do not pass judgment on one another. So this is one of the things that people like to use. And we're going to look at two more from this. Verse one, as for the one who's, who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the other person eats any, only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Well, there you go. Must be the Sabbath is done away with. See, don't judge me. If you're if you're a Saturday person, don't judge me if I'm a Sunday person. Yeah, not so fast. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we die, we live to the Lord. And if we, or if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Amen to that. For this 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So now, does this passage of Romans 14, 1 through 12, mean that Paul is talking about the Sabbath, like Saturday or Sunday? Or is he talking about something else? Now, first thing that's very important to understand is that when this letter was written, people were not debating whether you should rest on Sunday or Saturday. That didn't happen for at least 300 years after this letter, approximately, give or take. It was actually probably less than 300, but nonetheless, a long time. The issue of Saturday versus Sunday was not an issue for a very long time after this letter was written. So you have to remember that. That's number one. Number two is that he's mentioning food and eating and basically all this stuff in the beginning, what somebody only eats vegetables, one person's abstaining. So what is he actually talking about? Well, he's talking about what I just mentioned with the Orthodox. I don't know if Catholics still do, maybe in some places, maybe Eastern Catholics, but this whole idea of fasting on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. This is actually an old Christian tradition. And I can prove it to you. The didac, if we just pull up the didac here, if you're familiar with the didac, which I've talked about in other end times related stuff, because the Christians who wrote this, this was written sometime in the you know, first or second century, around that time, very early historical documents, not inspired, but it shows us the thinking of the Christians of the time. And I've quoted the didac before because they believed, very interestingly enough, that in the end times, Satan will masquerade as the Son of God, will actually impersonate Christ, and people will be deceived. Very, very interesting. But that's a different can of worms. Didac, chapters 8 through 10, this is number 8. Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. But do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Sound familiar? And do not pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, pray thus, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As it is in heaven, also upon earth, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into trial, but deliver us from the evil one. This is also important too. This is the evil one. In Greek, it's the evil one. It's the personal evil one. Not just from regular evil, but from the evil one. The one who seeks to destroy you. There's an enemy. But anyway, for time is the for thine is the kingdom and power and the glory forever. Pray thus three times a day. Does this sound like religion to you? Very early on, this was like second century. They had already departed from the gospel. Very, very interesting. And of course, this is if you if you read this. If you put this in an Orthodox prayer book, you could not tell the difference. This is the funny thing. You could not tell the you could not tell the difference practically. Because the Orthodox today still fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Those are the those are days Fridays. So these attitudes, what's the point? These attitudes of when do you fast, what day is good, which day is holy? Well, see, if you're fasting on Monday and Thursdays, you're you're a heretic, you're a hypocrite. You gotta fast on Wednesday and Friday. Those are the true days. Do you see the problem that Paul is addressing? He's not at all talking about the Sabbath. He's talking about 
this debate that arose very early on with fasting. And what day do you choose to fast on? Do you esteem Wednesday better than Thursday? <gasps> You're a hypocrite. And Paul's saying, look, don't concern your guys. Don't judge each other for such stupid things. This is not a, an issue that needs to be in the church. If you want to fast on Wednesday, then give, give glory to God and do it. That's fine. That's a choice. You can fast. If you don't fast, then great. Give glory to God. Enjoy your day. It's all about living for the Lord and not getting caught up in such trivial things. These aren't salvation issues. Now, compare that with other things. For example, like circumcision, where Paul writes to the Galatians. This We're going to read about Paul's letter to the Galatians. This bitterly polemic letter reflects tensions between Paul and the Christian community. He found it in Galatia, a Roman province in Asia, in Asia Minor. In his absence, Paul is finding that his teachings are being challenged by others claiming to be Christian teachers who are encouraging the formerly pagan Galatians to be circumcised and observe the elements of the Jewish law. Does this sound like something happening today on YouTube where all my Hebrew roots people and sacred name people and whatever legalists are commenting on all of my comments and saying, no, 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 this, that's not, we got to keep the feast. We got to keep this way. And you got to say Yehoshua, otherwise you're not saved. Same stuff. Nothing new under the sun, folks. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, one of my favorite verses of all time. Nothing new under the sun. Very important. But moving on. Paul responds by vehemently excoriating these false teachers, warning against circumcision, and asserting that Christians need not follow Jewish dietary laws. So Paul is addressing, now we're going to compare this letter to this passage in Romans, where it does become a salvation issue. In Romans 14, this issue of what day do you esteem, which, you know, which day is better for fasting, this is, he's saying, look, this is not an issue to be arguing against, guys. It's not a salvation issue. Whoever wants to do that, go ahead and do it. Like, don't argue with each other. This is stupid. However, when he's addressing circumcision and people who are departing from the gospel, by thinking they need to go back to the sacrificial system, i.e. circumcision and, and observing the laws and th different things. Now, let's see how Paul responds to that. Well, if you look again back at this article, Galatians 1 deals with him building a case against their legalism. Galatians 2 also, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, Galatians 5, in fact, even Galatians 6, when he closes, it's not highlighted in this particular article, but even Galatians 6, the entire letter is building and arguing a case against legalism and circumcision and the need for circumcision. All six chapters deals with it. So what's the point? The point is that if there is an actual legal issue or gospel issue or salvation issue or issue of the old covenant or anything like that, that Paul builds an, an extremely detailed case. Compare also with the idea of, in Romans also, like Romans 11, and I talk about this in my end time series, where he says, in this way all Israel will be saved, right? What, is, what does that mean in Romans 11 verse 26, where he says all Israel will be saved? Well, who is Israel? And of course, a lot of the Jewish-focused end times people will think, oh, see, future revival of the Jews. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about. And I prove it to you in that episode. So go watch the episode if you believe that. But the point is this. 
Paul's definition of Israel and what it means to be Jew in this new covenant is, is a spiritual definition. And what does he do to address that so that this new reality can be made very clear? He builds a case throughout all of Romans. By the time you get to Romans 11, and he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. You're not talking about the actual nation of Israel. You're talking about the spiritual conglomerate of Israel, of those who are born-again believers, who are, part of them, we're going to come from Israel, physical Israel, but a greater part is going to come from the nations, from the Gentiles. So what's the point? The point is that Paul builds a case for everything that he does, especially when he's addressing legalism and something that is very, very important. But he did nothing of the sort in Romans 14 because this is a dietary issue. It's not, it wasn't a challenge to the gospel. He's not dealing with the law of God. And certainly if he was dealing with the actual Sabbath, given Paul's style of writing, and the, the fact that he observed the Sabbath, the fact that it was part of what he did, and, and it's a law of God, it's a ten, one of the Ten Commandments, you can bet your butt that he would have devoted a lot of time to providing a context for why, if he was arguing, listen, we don't need to celebrate the Sabbath. It's been done away with at the cross, guys. Don't be legalists. Which again, he's not addressing legalism, he's addressing silly judgments of one another in the church based on what you're eating and when. He's not addressing legalism. In Galatians, he's addressing legalism. That's why all of Galatians is a case against circumcision in the old sacramental system and how that's been done away with, or sacrificial system. It's been done away with. He's addressing all of it, but he makes no such case in Romans 14 for the dietary debates that people were having because they're not. it's not a significant issue. So if it was the Sabbath... We should expect to see a massive case for him to basically justify God's law changing, God's eternal moral character changing, uh, the Sabbath being done away with, the Sabbath being transformed to Sunday, all these things that people believe today. There should be a massive case for it, and there is nothing. You know why? Because the Romans 14 passage isn't addressing the Sabbath. It's about something completely different. So people are misusing this passage to support their case. Paul is not addressing legalism. It's not a threat to the gospel. And ultimately, even if you look at the following verses after Romans, after the section we read, um, like, for example, Romans 13 through 14, this is right after what we just read. Do not cause another to stumble. So he's kind of repeating the point. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is addressing like brotherly love and, and how we should behave with one another. It's not addressing legalism. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Unclean, the word for unclean is not... So the word here in Greek is koinos. It's like common. It's not unclean, like ceremonially unclean or sinful or anything else. He's saying, I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is common in and of itself. Like it's not, it's not some sinful situation. It's just common. But if it is common for anyone who thinks it's common. So meaning if you, if you're going to abstain from something, then just do it. Don't, but don't judge 
somebody else thinking that your standard is the objective standard. Just like we said with the liturgical calendars of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. It's not a sin to do your laundry on Sunday. It's not a sin to eat meat on Friday. If you choose not to do that, great. But that's realize that you are creating your own subjective standard that God is not holding you to. You're not. But if you're going to hold yourself to it, then don't be a hypocrite and do it. Or don't make other people do it because now you're trying to change God's law and be the God of their life by telling them what's right and what's wrong. That's, you got to point to the Ten Commandments, not to your own laws. This is what all of this is going on. So ultimately, Paul is not talking about the Sabbath. And you're going to see that with all of these particular objections. Now, the second objection is Colossians 2. And of course, it's kind of the same thing. Let no one disqualify you. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Uh-oh. There you go. The Sabbath is done away with in one line. In one line, man. That's it. All of God's eternal moral code, the moral code that's put in the Ark of the Covenant, the moral code that God rested on the seventh day and, and taught Adam and everybody else and expected Abraham to do it and taught the Israelites before the Exodus to do it with the manna and that Jesus obeyed and, and upheld and that Paul wrote about in other places that we uphold the law. That moral code in one verse is done away with, boom, deleted. That's it, with no case whatsoever, no explanation as to why this grandiose change in God's moral character would happen. What's the justification? What's the reasoning? There's no precedent, no case, nothing. Just one line, done away with, boom, that's it. Really? I don't think so. Let's continue, though. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What does this mean? What does this mean? The question is, does it talk about the Sabbath? Or when it says a Sabbath here, is it mean, does it mean something else? And was this capitalized by translation error because people had a particular bias against the the keeping of the Sabbath, and they, you know, they say, oh, well, yeah, sure, the Sabbath is done away with at the cross, so this probably refers to the weekly Sabbath, which is not true. As you'll see, none of these actually refer to the actual seventh-day Sabbath. Now, notice really quick that it says a Sabbath and not the Sabbath. It doesn't say, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or a new moon or the Sabbath. Every time the Sabbath is mentioned as in the Seventh-day Sabbath, it is the Sabbath. It is not a Sabbath. So that's an important point. That's an important point. And we talked about how Sabbath, there's Sabbath and Sabbaths. And we'll talk about this again in the future, next episode, where we look at when the day starts. But Sabbath and Sabbaths refer to different things. There's the weekly Sabbath, which is the moral commandment. But there are Sabbaths, which are holidays and feast days and different things, where you also have to had to rest in the ceremonial system. And that's what this is pointing to. So let's look at that. Hosea 2 verse 11. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Now, Sabbaths in this case is being lumped with what? Feasts, new moons. Now, new moons in themselves weren't significant, but people offered sacrifices on new moons. So this is part of the sacrificial system. I will put an end to her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her, and her appointed feasts. All of these things 
if you didn't know anything about the Sabbath, but you knew a little bit about the Old Testament, all of these categories, except the Sabbath, right? If you, if you didn't read with context, are part of what? They're part of the sacrificial system. So it's very important to understand that the word Sabbath in this case refers to not the weekly Sabbath, but the Sabbaths that were commanded with part of the sacrificial system, because there were many. There were many times when there was commanded a Sabbath, meaning a rest, because that was part of the sacrificial system. That is done away with. That part God can get rid of. He's not saying, I'm going to put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, and her seventh-day weekly Sabbath, so that you are not, so now I'm abolishing the law that I created at creation, and I had everybody obey up until now. Is that what God is saying? No, God cannot change. He cannot contradict himself. If he did, if this is what God is commanding, that he's putting an end to the seventh-day Sabbath, it would contradict everything up until that point. So think about that, because that doesn't make any sense. But nonetheless, this is it put in the same context as Colossians 2. Sabbath is attached to new moons, feasts, appointed feasts, because it's part of the sacrificial system. Notice the same thing, Ezekiel 45, verse 17. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings. What are we talking about? We're talking about the sacrificial system. At the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths. Now, again, this is capitalized translation because probably people just had a little bias, but anyway, the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths. Again, the same sequence of things, which is tied to what? The sacrificial system. All the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. So after he just gave you all of these categories, just so you're sure that everything's included, he says, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. Appointed feast, the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath is not a feast day. It's not an appointed feast. There are appointed feasts in the whole system. There's the feast days, there's various Sabbaths that come with that, various sacrifices that are being done, all the appointed feasts. So the list that you were just given of the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, comma, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel, it's talking about the sacrificial system. He shall provide the sin offerings, the grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. This is talking about sacrificing and the sacrificial system. And as you can see, the sequence is the same. Feast, new moon, Sabbath. It's not talking about the weekly Sabbath. It's not talking about the moral commandment. It's talking about the feast, the appointed Sabbaths that were part of the sacrificial system. Again, the new moon didn't have significance, but it was just when sacrifices were offered on them, various new moons. And so this is why new moons are mentioned, because it's part of the sacrificial system. This, the thing that's in common, the common denominator between all these things is sacrifices. Therefore, the Sabbaths that are mentioned here which follow the same line of wording and reasoning in Colossians 2, are holidays. They're not the seventh-day Sabbath. Now, to touch on that, when, when it says that there are a shadow of the things to come, when back in Colossians really quick, and he says, these are a shadow of the things to come. What is Paul talking about? Is he saying that the moral law is a shadow of the thing to come? No, it's not. The moral law was never a shadow of anything. Remember, the moral law was in the Ark of the Covenant. The moral law is 
part of eternal God's eternal character. That's not a shadow of anything. The sacrificial system was a shadow for sure. For example, the five types of offerings. I've talked about this before, but they all foreshadow Christ's as sacrifice and the relationship that we get as a result of that in some way. The ministry of the high priest, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the sanctuary, all these things are shadows, indeed, of what was to come. But the moral law is not part of the shadows. The moral law is the eternal, eternally radiating moral character of God that never changes. The moral code, the Ten Commandments, do not foreshadow Christ's ministry. Christ came to fulfill the law, meaning to tell you how much, how important it is to God, like the Sermon on the Mount, and of course, to provide a solution for it through his sacrifice. Hebrews 8, verse 4 through 5 says, Now if we if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. When he says they, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the moral commandments? No, he's talking about the priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Of course, the, the, God is very intentional about everything. See that you make it according to my instructions, because these things are pictures and shadows of the thing that's coming. Jesus Christ on earth, God in human form. These things are shadows of that, so that when he arrives, you understand what is being fulfilled. Not the moral commandment. The moral commandment's not foreshadowing anything. The moral commandment is, this is who I am. This is my moral code. This is what I expect. And this is why you need a savior, plain and simple. Now, another important thing with Colossians in terms of context is this idea of therefore. Whenever you see this word, like in verse 16, therefore, it's always a linking word from the section before it. So let's look at the section before it. It says, alive in Christ. Now, that one also starts with therefore. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So what's going on? Well, there's another therefore. So wait a minute. Let's go back to the previous section. For I want you to know that I, this is Colossians 2 verse 1 now. For I want you to know that how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of what? Of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge. Paul, this chapter begins with Paul saying what? He is wrestling with a lot of principalities and powers and strongholds in those areas and the gospel. He has a great struggle for them and great desire for them to know the full understanding of the truth, which is the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God coming in human form, the gospel, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Now, why? what is the context of this in general? So we know that if we go back to verse 16, there's a therefore, there's another therefore. So it goes all the way to the beginning, meaning the beginning of this sets the context. The context is God, or uh, Paul, 
well, God through Paul, but Paul is speaking about the gospel. He's addressing issues concerning the gospel. Now, what issues were, was he addressing? Well, if you research Colossae, the, the town that he was writing to, it had a lot of different kinds of people. It had Jews, it had Gnostics, it had pagans. So very important to understand that the social climate, uh, you know, climate of that particular time, because as the gospel was going out, there were a lot of contradictory views. The Jews were trying to get the Christians to go back to the sacrificial system. The Gnostics were teaching false things like, you know, vain, empty words and philosophies and worldly things, elemental spirits of the world, all the things that Paul was addressing later. So in this climate, Paul was waging war through the gospel with them so that they would not be deceived by these other views, either to the right or to the left. Do you see the same pattern? Either towards legalism through the Jewish practices, the works righteousness, the rabbinic practices, or through like a liberal, oh, Gnosis, everything's spiritual, we don't have to worry, you know, we have to ascend and all these different things. New age versus old age, same old stuff, man. Literally, there's nothing new under the sun. It's really profound. So the point is this. He's not addressing the Seventh-day Sabbath as these other places that we've seen in Romans 14 and as you'll see in Hebrews 10. He's not addressing the Sabbath. He's addressing the gospel and warning people not to be deceived by Gnosticism or going back to the sacrificial system. He's addressing these things. And again, if he was addressing the Sabbath, he would have built an enormous case for that. And he, of course, God would not lead him to do that because God cannot contradict himself. But this is not about the Sabbath. He's not addressing it. He's saying, do not go back to formal, former things, i.e. the shadows. The sacrificial system were shadows of the truth found in Christ. Don't go back to those sacrifices. They're pointless. Doesn't mean go, don't go back to observing the Sabbath. That's not what he's saying. You have to understand this in context and what's what's going on in there. When you, when you have a perfect sacrifice in Christ, you are rejecting God by going back to the sacrificial system. And of course, he also says in the second section of Life in Christ, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. This is a direct point towards Gnosticism that was very popular in Colossae. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he's addressing both. He's saying, look, don't go back to the shadows of the sacrificial system. Don't let people take you captive and seduce you with all these fancy Gnostic ideas. Very fascinating, but he's not talking about the Sabbath. So conclusion is that also is not talking about the Sabbath. Now, one more objection, which is Hebrews 10. And of course, this is also used for since the law, this is what verse one through 18. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, are we talking about the moral law? Right from the get-go. Right from the get-go. You, you see what we're talking about. For, the, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. This is what people read. They read this and they stop, even though there's no period here. It keeps going. So let's keep going. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, does the moral law come with sacrifices? No. The moral law was given to show you God's character, that you can never attain it. 
And that was the justification for the sacrificial system in the Old Testament that allowed you to have propitiation for your sins by grace through faith. It's always been by grace through faith. God gave both. He gave the moral commandment. It's just so well done. You got to admire how well done it is. He revealed his moral character. Here's who I am, holy and perfect, completely perfect. You can never, you can never reach the standard, but you will be able to atone for your sins through a propitiation, which is the sacrificial system. And it came with all these things that were very specifically outlined by God because they were pictures of the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate propitiation, which would be in Christ. But nonetheless, it was by grace through faith. You had faith in God, you obeyed, you were a good citizen. Of course, you weren't justified by being obedient, but you had the moral code, and if you were killing people or adultery, that was a huge problem. Now, of course, there was grace for that too. When David sinned and had adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, God forgave that. And that's why it says in Romans that one of the main reasons Christ showed up was to vindicate the name of God as a righteous judge because he had passed over former sins. How can the judge of the earth forgive anybody and remain just? This is the ultimate problem of the universe, a problem that only Jesus could solve. The sacrificial system did not solve it. It allowed for a way for God to be gracious and have a propitiation for sins, but it was just designed as a picture. The cross was already scheduled. Acts 4, 26 to 28, the cross was predestined. So ultimately, Hebrews 10, if you read through it, it's all about sacrifices. We can read a couple of verses. Otherwise, this is verse two, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any cons- consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is about sacrifices. So when you read this first line, which you're not even reading completely if you're stopping here, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, if you are stopping here, you're not reading in context. You are extracting half of the sentence and using it to justify something enormous, like God changing his moral standard. So this is pretty much, I'm not going to read the whole thing about it because it's very clear it's about the sacrificial system. You can read it for yourself. It is about the sacrificial system. Hebrews 10 is not talking about the moral law as a shadow of things to come or the moral law somehow being implicated with sacrifices. He's talking about this. The author here is talking about the sacrificial system. The ceremonial law was a was a shadow. Again, we talked about this with the priesthood, the tabernacles, sacrifices. All that stuff was a shadow for the things to come which is what? Which is the ministry of Christ, a perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all propitiation that you can accept by faith and be given grace. That was the point. But the moral law has been independent of that for all time, since the beginning. The moral law, by the way, wasn't created on Sinai. God's God has always existed. That means that the moral character of God has always existed. The, the commandments that were given on Sinai were an expression of God's moral character in time. And they were written in stone. But that doesn't mean that suddenly before that, they didn't exist. Of course it existed. God's moral character endures forever. And so that's never changing. That's just been here. The sacrificial system came in order to 
you know, make you right with God because he has a perfect standard with the law. And the sacrificial system was done away with at the cross because now we have a perfect sacrifice in Christ. Remember what Revelation said. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Who, what? Hold to the faith of Jesus Christ and keep the commandments. That's why these two things are highlighted. Doesn't mean this is where people stumble so hard, man. It doesn't mean that keeping the commandments gets you saved. You have to understand this. They both exist. We are saved by Christ and by his perfect sacrifice and faith in that work. But that doesn't mean that the law is done away with. That doesn't mean that God suddenly doesn't care about your morality. Of course he does. And as you're conformed to the image of Christ, who, by the way, celebrated the Sabbath, you are convicted to be more and more obedient because you're saved, not because you need to be saved. So very, very important. So final thoughts. Sabbath is a moral commandment. It's a moral good. It was intended as a gift for us to focus on God and to delight in it, to be having a day with God himself in our lives. Of course, God is present there every day, but you have an appointed day every week to rest and rejuvenate and refresh yourself that was given to you by the creator of the universe. That to me is just such a profound thing. And of course, in Christ it is fulfilled. And we'll talk about that at the end of the series, how exactly it's fulfilled and how it's so much more meaningful and so much more delightful as a Christian to celebrate the Sabbath. But nonetheless, it's a moral command. The Sabbath is the only commandment that God said, remember because it would be forgotten from the common mindset. It's a test, test of faith. The Sabbath has been around since creation. God himself rested on the Sabbath. The patriarchs from Adam up to Christ rested on the Sabbath. Christians after Jesus observed the Sabbath, and we'll document this more in the future. The Sabbath is a joy, and it was made for us. It was made for man. Paul did not teach the Sabbath was abolished. All of the verses that we looked at we're not having to deal with the Sabbath whatsoever. They're either dealing with bickering on, on silly things like when people are fasting or the sacrificial system. Every time Paul basically made a case against legalism, he, he built an entire case. He made sure to spend a lot of time on it, which you don't see in all of these verses that people bring up and say, see, the law was done away with. It's a shadow. Well, you mean the moral law? The moral law was a shadow? I don't think so. If that's the case, then that means we don't, ha- we don't have to obey the law anymore as Christians. We can sin all we want. That was the, what the Nicolaitans did. And what does Revelation tell you? That Jesus hates the Nicolaitans, or hated because they're not around any longer. But Paul never taught against the Sabbath. That's a misconception. Paul observed the Sabbath. We looked at that in the last episode. True biblical Christians should celebrate the Sabbath just like you obey the other Ten Commandments, or try to obey. Obviously, we're not perfect. You know, sometimes we we make mistakes and it's normal, but you're going to keep making mistakes until the time comes. But that doesn't mean that you don't try. A true born-again believer tries to obey because they're saved, because they're grateful for what God has given them, and because they have a new heart capable of obeying. John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Don't interpret that as a legalist in the sense of, well, uh, I better keep those commandments, otherwise I don't love God. No, use it as a reminder that, hey, that's a test for yourself. Do you have fruits of your faith? Are you inspired by this series, by this topic, 
to maybe reevaluate your stance on the Sabbath? That's what you should be asking yourself. We rest because we are saved, not to be saved. We rest because we enjoy and take delight in focusing on God and having a mindful day with God, in having a rejuvenating day of prayer and going out in nature, enjoying his works, meditating on our life, on nature, on creation, just as it was intended. That was the point, is to have a deep and fulfilling spiritual experience with God, which the Sabbath provides. And it's good for your health, too. It's good to rest intentionally, because oftentimes we rest and we just do nothing. Watch you know, TV or something like that. In the last episode, we're going to look at how to do this mindfully without drifting into legalism because the Sabbath is a delight. It has changed my life personally, and I hope it does change yours. But the question is this. Here's the million-dollar question. The million-dollar question. You ready? Now that you know the truth, what are you going to do with it? <laughs>